brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor here at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as he always does, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. Howdy. Hi there. Yeah. Oh, wait. Not, that's sort of your line. Yeah. Sort yeah, of. Or hey there. Uh, today we thought we would continue our we, – we've been doing a few podcasts recently about sort of the, the, the predecessors of what we think of as the Internet. And we were kind of going to go along those same lines, something that, that – uh, that, consumers had access to before we had access to the World Wide Web. And that would be uh, online service providers. That's kind of the, the collective term for these sort of companies. Online service providers actually were sort of the middle ground, at least the way I think of it, between uh, the older bulletin board services and the Internet when Mm. it caught on as a commercial entity where people would actually have content that they wanted to sign on. Whereas a bulletin board was sort of a centralized hub where people would log in and log out of for information, uh, an online service provider was like that, only much, much larger. And um, although you may be going, wait a minute, online service providers, I really don't know anything about what you're talking about. I think you probably have a few coasters sitting around your home uh, that used to belong to uh, at least one of them. Yeah. Uh, Well, let's kind of talk about, you know, you, you can make a good point about how online service providers kind of bridge the gap between the BBSs and, and say, the, the, the current Internet. Yes. Um, so if you think of a BBS, most BBSs were run on a single computer Yes. Uh, that had a modem line going connected to it, and often you could only have a single devoted phone line going to that BBS. BBS, by the way, stands for Bulletin, bulletin board, board System. system. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted to access a Bulletin Board System, you would have to dial into that Bulletin Board, and then you would have uh, assuming that no one else was already connected to it, you could then go in there, read the the message board, maybe play a short game. Um, you might even be limited to a specific amount of time before it automatically kicks you off, so that you don't just uh, just uh, hog all the time of the system. Right. These were uh, these were small and and usually uh, operated by just one or two dedicated folks who were interested in hosting a service like this. Right. So you wouldn't want to monopolize their uh, the service because then you wouldn't have anything else from anyone else to uh, to yeah. enjoy. You would just be taking up all the time. So these bulletin board services uh, systems, rather, were uh, were fairly primitive. Now, an online service provider was more like a network. Mm-hmm. Um, you you actually had a couple of steps here. You would again, you're using a modem, and we're talking about the old dial-up modems. So these are modems that are connected to phone lines, and you would use the modem to connect to uh, a. a well, it's a local area connection. Mm-hmm. You know, you would you would dial into a local uh, connection that would then connect you to the overall network. Um, a lot of the online service providers charge by the minute or by the hour, or uh, or they some of them later on would charge by the month. Right, right, and um, yeah, basically in this case, if you wanted to sign up for service with an online service provider, um, you would ha- hope that they had a node local to you. So right. they would have a a pool, what they would call a pool of modems, uh, sitting there 
in, say, the downtown area of your uh, of the local large city, and you would uh, dial a local number, and that would connect you to uh, via their own network to you know the main servers, and from there you could access the information. Right, because otherwise you would have to pay twice. You would have to pay yes. once for the phone call, so you're paying the the phone operator one one price, and then you're paying the uh, the the operator, the online service provider, um, and a subscription fee essentially to access their services. Mm-hmm. Now these networks, in many ways, especially later on, as as they began to evolve. Uh, started to resemble what we think of as the internet, except for one really, really important distinction, which is that they all remained independent of each other. Yes. So if you belonged to one online service provider, so let's say CompuServe, that was a famous one, right? And then let's say say Chris belongs to CompuServe, but I belong to Prodigy. Right. Now, both of those services did have things like electronic mail for their members, but the members could only email other members of that same service. Right. So I could not email Chris because we would be on two different online service providers. There would not be a crossover there because this is predating the era where the Internet became available to the general public. At this point, the Internet is still really really the domain of uh, of universities and the government. Right. I, I, I don't want... Uh, hopefully nobody paused the podcast to write us an email and tell us, no, I had CompuServe and I was allowed to email other people. Yes. Well, there are still CompuServe subscribers. The service still exists, but it's no longer an online service provider. Yes, later on, as they became connected to the Internet, you could do this. But what we're talking about is when these services started, because uh, CompuServe, for example, was uh, founded in 1969. Right. Which was before, way before the Internet actually became a, a popular service among the, you know, uh, everyday user. You know, well, yeah, was, in 69, it, the, they were still developing the protocols that would form the backbone of the Internet, the backbone as far as the, the software side is concerned. Right, right. And or at yeah, least, the, yeah, that would allow it to be a, a major network. Right. There were few, very few systems connected to ARPANET at the time. There was, there really was no, no Internet Yeah, no Internet 69. proper. Um, so, yeah, uh, we're talking about, let's say, Pre-1990. Right. Okay, so before the the Internet has really become a, a public... Uh, utility in a way, if you you know, it's, it, using utility is still kind of misleading, but just to to say that it's open to service. the public service, a there service that, that is open to public. So before that, you had these private networks that were all self-contained. Now each private network gave uh, its members access to certain services that, uh, again, mirror what we find on the internet. But what you would find on one service would not necessarily be the same as what you would find on another. Mm-hmm. So for example. If you were a CompuServe uh, customer and you logged in and you wanted to check the news that was available through various articles on CompuServe, it may not be the same selection that you would find if you were a Prodigy uh, customer. That's right. Yeah, um, a lot of these online service providers had struck deals with different entities for for uh, providing content. Uh, going going back to CompuServe, um, they were the hosts for the first online newspaper in the United States, uh, the Columbus Dispatch from Ohio, uh, signed on in July of 1980. Uh, back when CompuServe had about 
3,600 total subscribers. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, they were the, they were the ones, if you wanted to, to, uh, read the Columbus Dispatch, that's where you would go. You would go to CompuServe and, and sign on. And, uh, a lot of other places, a lot of other, sorry, a lot of other newspapers signed on with CompuServe after that. But, uh, providers like Prodigy and America Online. Yeah, that's the one we were talking about with the coasters. Yes, when they would send out lots and lots and lots of discs and people began using them as coasters. People began referring to the discs, which they would get, uh, numerous discs in the mail and in cereal boxes and in pay, uh, poly bags that came around Chucked your newspapers. Chucked out of windows of passing cars. Yes. I mean, it was, it was crazy. Yeah, the people used to refer to them, uh, derisively as <laughs> coasters. Right. Uh, but, uh, no, I mean, there, basically if you wanted a service, say you wanted subscription to the New York Times, you might not be able to get it with one OSP. You would have to sign on to another because that's the one that had the content deal in place. Which means that you would have to pay another subscription fee to another online service provider. Uh-huh. And some, like we said, sometimes these early ones were charging by the hour. So you would log on and it would depend not only uh, on uh, how long you stayed on there, but the speed of your modem connection. And these modem connection speeds, the dial-up ones, were incredibly slow compared to broadband connections. It's almost unimaginably slow for someone who has just started using the internet recently because um, most people, even if you're using a dial-up, are traveling at blistering speeds compared to the early ones. And um, and most of the early online service providers were strictly text-based mm-hmm. because of this. I mean, uh, it, it wasn't just that you know graphics would, were challenging to, to transmit over lines. It's just that the speed of data transmission was so low that it would take forever for you to download a picture. So most uh, most of these were were text-based, at least early on. Mm-hmm. Only a few would start to develop graphic user interfaces uh, over time. And those graphic user interfaces uh, in the late, or really in the early 90s, were mm-hmm. very primitive compared to what you would see today. I mean, the World Wide Web really has redefined um, the way that we view interfaces like this and i think uh you know for someone who is who is probably new to the internet in the last 10 years or so if you went back to look at some of the interfaces that these osps used back in the day so to speak um you would go are you kidding me yeah no uh but for for those of us who grew up during this this time or who were using computers during this time uh, it was really an exciting time because before then everything you wanted to do on your computer was was restricted just to your computer mm-hmm. and you would have to go and you would get software and you would run the software on your computer but that's it it was a self-contained system and there was no connection to the outside world mm-hmm. the modem broke that door open and first it broke it open with just having computer to computer communication which was already revolutionary for those of us who had personal computers sure uh, and that's where the bulletin board system kind of grew out of out of that culture but getting to the online service provider where suddenly you had access to to content and you didn't have to go out and buy a disk and put the disk into your computer to to look at that content mm-hmm. and yes you did have to have the software on your computer so that you could access these online service providers right Right, it was essentially a client that you would use that you would dial into something, and then everything would be delivered through, and you'd be looking at it through the client. But yeah. 
you wouldn't have to say get go out and get a a new uh, encyclopedia type of program in order to see the latest information on stuff. You could log into this online service provider and see it. And at the time, this was revolutionary. You know, before again, you would just have to wait till someone published something. You would have to go out and buy it, and then you would look at it locally on your computer. Mm-hmm. Um, and were you uh, or your family uh, customers of an online service provider? Um, my uh, my wife's family, se- several of them had actual accounts with OSPs. Uh, personally, since I started using the Internet in 1990, actually I was using BitNet in 1990, I should say, mm-hmm. um, I moved directly to the Internet via a shell account. I was using a shell account for a long time, which for, for the uninitiated is basically a, a terminal account where you're typing commands in. And uh, I had a uh, shell account, which is Unix-based, I mm-hmm. believe, on most services anyway, uh, or at the time it was, um, until the late 90s. Uh, so I really hadn't – and I, I went from a shell account directly to the World Wide Web without going the OSP route. Right. Uh, now, as my family, actually, we were customers of Genie. Ah, yes. The uh, General Electric had a, a web service called Genie. Right. Uh, and uh, Capital G, capital E. Yes. And Genie, uh, it, it offered things like message boards. It mm-hmm. offered email among Genie users. Uh, there were games that you could play. Some of them were, uh, like, they even had, like, flight simulators. But they also had the, the MUDs or multi-user dungeons. Oh, yes. In which uh, several players could all be playing this, this text-based uh, adventure game all at the same time. Uh, some of the MUDs would even allow you to interact directly with players in, in in more meaningful ways than just being able to, to talk to each other. You could trade items or, or even some of them had the, the primitive player versus player kind of interactions where you could uh, engage in combat with each other. Mm-hmm. But the reason why we went with Genie specifically was because of their forums, which right. were called Roundtables. Ah, yes. Now, Genie happened to be a very popular service among a very niche uh, uh, audience. And that would be science fiction authors. Mm-hmm. Now, my parents are both science fiction authors. So my father in particular at the time, he was he was uh, the published author. Uh, Mom had not uh, written anything with Dad at, yet at that point. Um, but Dad was a, a published science fiction author and used Genie to uh, correspond with other science fiction authors. Um, he was a member of CIFWA, which is Science Fiction Writers of America. Oh, yes. And uh, through Genie, they could stay in touch with each other in a much more effective Way than, than you know sending letters or or, or corresponding and and you know traditional methods. Mm-hmm. So um, so I actually got familiar with online service providers fairly early. Um, I also learned very early that uh, uh, you know, most of these meant that I could only be on for a very short amount of time because otherwise I would get in trouble for running up the bill. Yeah. Although eventually most of these online service providers, uh, in order to stay competitive, move to monthly fees as opposed to hourly fees because um, there were a lot of uh, sur- people were getting more and more accustomed to the idea of having unlimited access for a flat rate as opposed to having to pay on an hourly basis. Yes, yes. And back then, of course, unlimited access really didn't mean that much bandwidth still because we're talking mostly text, uh, some primitive graphics, and really your connection speeds were only so fast anyway. So it wasn't like you were jamming up the networks by you know, accessing the, the, the services 24-7. Right, right. There weren't a lot of uh, 
there weren't a lot of people uh, uploading and downloading things like um, movies, music, or books. Yeah, seeing because as that, how that would have taken, taken years. A long, long time on a 2400 baud modem. It would have been faster to go out there and recreate the movie from scratch. <laughs> I think you're probably right. Let's get a cast together. You know, I, I'm almost certain that's what, what those kids who did uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark were thinking. Yeah. <laughs> we could download it, but it'd just be faster if we just performed the darn thing. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, and, and and I basically got my start in the internet world, um, actually working in the internet world as a, uh, a sales representative for a national internet service provider. And one of the very first things, this was in 1996, and one of the very first things that I had to answer for a lot of people was, you know, why should I sign up with you? And they would come from uh, AOL or Prodigy or CompuServe, and they didn't understand the difference between an internet connection, uh, you know, to the internet itself versus being on one of those services. And to some degree, there wasn't a connection, and, and in a lot of cases, the content they wanted was probably uh, limited to another OSP that they didn't have access to. Right. But it wasn't. Uh, it really wasn't long. The the mid to late 1990s. I mean, um, the OSPs put up a good fight. For a while, because they didn't necessarily their protocols were not TCP/IP. No, they all they all had uh, proprietary protocols. Yeah, most of them were packet switching protocols, but it wasn't the same sort of uh, packet switching that you'd find in, in TCP/IP. Right. So the thing is, they weren't really compatible with uh, information on the internet. And the thing is, I think it wasn't necessarily. Uh, the ISPs outselling them. I mean, a lot of the ISPs offered unlimited access around that mm-hmm. time, 1996, 97, 98. Um, that was unusual for people like AOL. But at the same time, there was content available from the other services. And I think uh, the OSPs gradually felt pressure to open their networks up to the Internet so that you could get uh, things like Usenet News and, uh, you know, some of the uh, the web content because mm-hmm. the World Wide Web and an OSP are not the same thing. Right, right. Uh, so some OSPs started to become gateways to the Internet. Yes. So you could access both their proprietary content or the, the content that they had partnered with other providers to give to their members, as well as access the wider array of content you could find on the Internet, which was almost like open just for public consumption. Mm-hmm. Um and so uh, companies like AOL and Prodigy in particular really uh, and even CompuServe really tried to leverage this sort of uh, this sort of content to to attract people and say look you know yeah you could go to an ISP but we're providing that service already and you get access to this content that you're not going to find on the internet yeah that was their big compelling argument right now granted and, I, and that worked for a little while yes, but it, it was definitely a short term thing so for OSPs to survive they really only had one choice, mm-hmm. and that was to to evolve into becoming an ISP, an Internet Service Provider, because if they didn't do that, eventually the content that had been uh, uh, exclusive to that particular provider was going to make it onto the Internet one way or another, because the, the companies that they were making partnerships with, could they, they saw that the, where the future was, and that the future was that they needed to have an online presence of their own on the Internet, and instead of just partnering with an OSP where their content is locked up behind this this uh, this this wall they wanted to have their more control over their own uh, presentation and so you started to see these companies create websites and uh, 
that was that was sort of the beginning of the end of the OSP business. Yeah, yeah, it was it was one of those things where people could say, well, you know, I've got access to this company's 19 million subscribers, but look how fast the internet is growing, and you know, if I if I make my content available on the internet as well, then I could probably get even more subscribers. Um, and that's that's gradually the way it's gone. Um, most of the the biggest online service providers still exist in some form, or at least uh, CompuServe and AOL, of course, uh, do exist still. Um, but a lot of the smaller ones that uh, like Genie mm-hmm. are no longer with us, right? Uh, at least not in their original form. Yeah. Um, and you know, I as we've been talking about it, I've been thinking about. Uh, how OSPs sort of are uh, similar to the net neutrality argument we're having now, where if you are, a, um, you know, if you belong to ISP A, uh, you're a subscriber of the internet service provider A, you have access to everything on the internet, but you might have special access to certain types of content that. You know, people from other internet service providers may not have access to, or may have limited access to, or even slower access to. Right. Um, and that's sort of it's sort of in the same same vein when you think about it, because sure. you know, there's a, a, a perception of exclusivity that belongs to an OSP. If you think back to the time, hey, if you sign up with us, you get all these great things that you can't get anywhere else. Well. You know, if, if net neutrality uh, goes by the wayside and, and we, uh, you know, the internet service providers are allowed to regulate the flow of traffic on their own networks, um, then they will be able to claim exclusivity again. Sure. Yeah. And and you know that has its own benefits and its own drawbacks. The biggest sure. drawback for me, at least, is that with online service providers, you they weren't as regional. Right. You could pretty much find a way of being a customer of one of these different or, or multiple online service providers if you really wanted to. Yeah. Uh, in any major market. Now, mm-hmm. granted, the 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 folks who live in rural parts of the United States and uh, you know to to expand that across the globe. Um, they often might be more limited because when we're talking back in the the good old days, you're talking about you know again a local phone call. You would have to hope that whatever service provider you wanted had a uh, had had modems that were within that local area code, mm-hmm. um, and not all of them did. But in most major markets, you would find representations of any of these OSPs there. You would be able to be a customer of any of those. Whereas today with ISPs, at least the major ISPs, you may not have that choice. So it may be that let's let's just do – this is just a, an example. Uh, let's say that Time Warner has access to this amazing array of content but, yes. but not – not everything, like you know, it's got, but they have their own. Right. And then Comcast has a different selection of equally amazing stuff, but it's different stuff. You might not live in an area that has access to both Comcast and Time Warner. You may have access to only one or the other, which means that you don't really have choice. Right. You, you're forced upon a selection of internet sites or inter- internet services, uh, that, and, and you have to be happy with that. You're not going to have the choice of, of company B, which is why net neutrality is a big deal because while 
Well, it's impossible to say that uh, that being an ISP, you know, that you, you're not really a monopoly. Regionally, you can be a monopoly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Nationally, true. they're not monopolies, and there are markets where there are multiple ISPs that you can choose from, major ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not that way across the entire nation. Right, right, and and uh, you know, it will be interesting to see uh, how. The content providers, the the independent content providers, view these situations because um, they're going to have to decide whether they're going to want to sell their content exclusively to um, a Cox Communications or a Quest mm-hmm. uh, or an AT and T. You know, if it means that people in other areas don't have access to that material and they could open themselves up to selling their content to millions more subscribers by making it open across multiple platforms. Right. It also might be an opportunity for uh, the satellite Internet providers to differentiate themselves because satellite Internet can be accessed by far more people in far more areas, but they have their own set of problems with uh, latency and bandwidth simply because of the nature of the, the communication from the Earth to the satellite and back. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, online gaming is much more difficult for satellite Internet subscribers than it would be for people using cable or DSL or WiMAX, for that matter. Sure. Um, so, you know, it, it's going to be interesting to see how that argument plays out. But you can see the similarity there between uh, the net neutrality arguments that we're making today and the OSPs, I think. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Uh, well, that was a, a good discussion about online service providers. I was actually a little worried about it before we went into it because um, – well, for one thing, I wasn't when when Chris sent me the email. He said OSPs, and I was like, "Well, uh, Ohio State Police." Uh, <laughs> what, uh, what, um, That's exactly what I meant, John. Yeah, I, I don't know how you might have gotten that confused. Yeah, so I have another. Uh, I have half of another podcast that I can record about the Ohio State Police. Um, <laughs> it's it's it's. Uh, high in the middle and round on both ends. No, I, I had seen something on uh, on OSPs not too long ago, and I thought, you know, we should revisit that that whole thing. And I remember, you know, the, the some of the uh, really unique proprietary uh, organizations like eWorld for the uh, for sure. Apple users. Sure. And um, I actually have an eWorld CD at home somewhere, which I'm not using as a coaster because they were far less uh, common than the AOL yeah, discs. That's a collector's item. Yeah. Mint inbox. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I think that was a, an interesting uh, uh, discussion to have about, you know, again, yeah, a precursor to the Internet. And uh, now we're going to have just a little bit of listener mail. This listener mail comes from Ryan in the UK, and the subject was, Jonathan's British accent freaks me out. And then the the email reads, it's the same whenever I hear you Americans try to speak in our accent. It really creeps me out. Big smiley face. Well, Ryan, uh, uh, I was purposefully doing a terrible British accent for that, thus the the whole uh, Dick Van Dyke joke, because Dick Van Dyke's accent in Mary Poppins was about as horrible as you could ask for. my own actual professional acting uh, British accents are slightly better, but I'm not going to do it because I don't want to creep you out. If uh, anything we do creeps you out, you can let us know by writing us. Our email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. We also welcome all questions, criticisms, uh, podcast ideas, anything like that. Go ahead and send it on in. And Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 
And be sure to check out the new Tech Stuff blog, now on the HowStuffWorks homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?